Welcome to Common Ground, a podcast series discussing new research and interesting projects in the field of complementary medicine. Hello, my name is Jackie Fay, Head of Education at Vitaly. Vitaly is a complementary medicine distributor with a goal to strengthen the relationship between customers, students, healthcare practitioners and premium complementary medicine. Firstly, we'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the lands and we pay our respects to elders past, present and future. This podcast is suitable for practitioners and students of complementary medicine and those of you who may be interested in embarking in a career in natural medicine. So today on Common Ground, I'll be speaking with Nathan Rose. Nathan is a naturopath and the Global Head of Clinical Affairs for Metagenics and has been involved in clinical education for over a decade. Welcome to Common Ground, Nathan. Thanks, Jackie. Um, firstly, I want to say that's a smooth introduction. Oh, <laughs> very thank envious. You. Well done. <laughs> thank you very <laughs> really much. Very good. Very impressive. <laughs> thank I need you. to learn that. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah, lovely to have you on board. So um, we'd love to hear, you know, Nathan, your background. How did you come into the field of complementary medicine? If you could share that with the audience today. Yeah, well, um, first of all, thanks for the invitation. Um, to be honest, so yeah, a bit shocked and humbled that you yeah, yeah, invited me. And uh, I thought when I first got the invite, I was thinking, oh, we're going to talk about gut or brain or microbiome. And then you said, talk about me. And I was like, oh, okay. okay. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, my background, first of all, um, I did want to say one thing I'm really interested in is, um, and we'll probably uh, uncover as we go through is I love neuroscience. So mm. um, just as a bit of a, a sort of a pretext, um, one of the things I found interesting, I find interesting with um, neuroscience is things on like memory and, and recall and stuff. And uh, what I've come to learn is our memories aren't really that good at um, reflecting back accurately. We like to pick and choose our stories and we tend to fabricate um not deliberately it's often subconsciously it's all about trying to figure out how to be a better person tomorrow so why i'm saying this is because mm. um this will be based loosely on a true story um yeah you know my, my background and um it's probably a little a little bit different in reality but oh yeah here we go um so yeah i was i grew up um out near geelong in the country so real sort of working class family and sort of floated around in my, my teens and things and was always mostly interested in things like um, sport and socialising and things and didn't really think too much about um, career. Uh, and the mantra back then was to get a trade. So I did that, um, which wasn't too bad. And I think I learned some things around like, um, you know, uh, finding the, the root cause, I suppose. I did an apprenticeship in electronics but I was always interested in um, health and fitness and um, I started getting interested in nutrition to do with like um, playing Aussie rules. Um, and then I started thinking about I'd like to do some tertiary education um, and it was actually halfway through the year. Um, I didn't really know much about natural medicine, but there's a couple, I suppose, funny little stories that I, I thought I'd share. Mm. Um, so I, I, when you asked me, so I, it took me a while to recall, but... Um, my mum's a bit of a hoarder <laughs> and she has um, a bunch of like eclectic books. And I remember um, I must have been late teens, early 20s, um, rifling through her bookcase and I saw that uh, it was a Dorothy Hall's Iridology book. Oh, uh, yep. Classic. And, I've got a, is, and I even thinking back now, it's like it's such a, a stunning book, like the photography and the stories. And I started thumbing through it and I thought, this is really interesting, um, you know, the Iridology and the, some of the the things that they claim they can um, predict and forecast and, uh, and it's really cool, obviously. And it also the case studies really um, fascinated me how she put them on different protocols and their health improved. And um, so that was one thing that was sort of, I, I was looking back, like that really stuck with me. Um, and the other thing was um, I was, as I said, I was playing Aussie rules and uh, I, I had a sore knee and it kept getting inflamed and swollen and, and going to the local country doctor Every week they'd have to um, put a massive syringe in it to extract the fluid, um, which was not pleasant. And I remember driving through Geelong one day and I saw just a sandwich board and it said acupuncture. And I thought, this is how naive I was. I thought, I think they use really little needles. I'm, I don't <laughs> like these big needles. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds good. And I went in the clinic there and I was just blown away by all the 
I had the herbal medicine background. He was a, a naturopath, a herbalist, an acupuncturist, and even a homeopath with all the little pills. And the clinic was really busy, and there was people in there, and they were getting all their prescriptions. And it was just like, wow, this is fascinating. What's all this about? So, um, yeah, I started. I asked him about it, and I started seeing him, treating him, and gave me all these herbs and things. And I think I've improved to a degree. Um, but that really whetted my appetite. And, um, yeah, so they had mid-year enrollment, thankfully, back then at um, Southern School of Natural Therapies, which is now Endeavour, I believe. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I sort of tossed it all in. People thought I was crazy, probably still do. Um, <laughs> and, you know, went from living on a big farm to a tiny little one-bedroom thing in, in Brunswick there and a bit of a culture shock. But, yeah, did the, the study and then um, I was fortunate enough to get some you know, clinic work uh, at a great clinic in Warren Diet, really, really busy, um, amazing practitioners, beautiful clinic. Um, I did that for about five years, uh, but I was always, um, what I noticed that when I was at college was I was actually, even though I wasn't very focused <laughs> in my youth, um, I actually found the, the science, the biochemistry and everything, I don't want to say easy, but interesting. Mm. And um, I, I sort of yeah, I suppose I was pretty good at it and ended up like tutoring some other students around, you know, physiology and biochemistry and stuff. So I probably had that sort of a skill set around, you know, research and geeking out and that sort of stuff. So um, anyway, sorry, it's a bit of a long story, but uh, I was in practice. Um, things are going pretty well. It takes obviously a while to, to get up and establish, but getting by. And um, used to see the um, reps from the different companies, and one of them was Metagenics. And there was a, um, it's a bit of a funny story. That it was uh, there was a, a product that I wasn't getting quite good results with. So um, in my spare time, I'd get on PubMed and look up all the research. And uh, at one point, I I gave the rep um, a bunch of papers <laughs> and said, "This this product stinks. Um, and if you you need to reformulate it, and here's all the." You know, that this is my formula. Oh, good on um, you. Yeah, I know, quite bold. Um, and uh, so the rep took it back and gave it to Paul Mannion, who you know, um, yeah, who, yep. who was the, the, the tech director at the time. He's now um, working on the, our sort of Asian business here. Uh, he rang me up and said, thanks for your feedback. Um, do you want a job? I was like, hmm. Uh, yeah, and just that the probably felt like needed a bit of change, move it to Brisbane. Didn't get the job straight away, but eventually, yeah, ended up at – um, metagenics doing education so i've been there yeah, for the last sort of 13 years in in different roles mostly education some um r d and innovation which i really love um some uh, leadership roles and things which have been great um we can talk about later you know in terms of career paths and things mm. for for students so yeah it's been you know it's a bit of a change practice obviously um you know you you're treating patients and it's all focused on the care it's a bit of a culture shock people i do find that with other people that come from practice into sort of you know it's pretty corporate i suppose um mm. you know you, you you do have morning teas and things which you don't really do <laughs> as a practitioner <laughs> and um you know the, the the jargon and stuff of the corporate world but uh yeah it, it, it suits me and mm. um you know i love working with a team as well it's one thing i've found in practice obviously you're seeing people every day um but it's somewhat you might get this feedback from others that somewhat sort of like almost lonely where it's very isolating in a sense and I think that's one of the benefits of education events is you get people together mm. um so I found that and again maybe just that background in team sports and things I, I really like working with a team and I'm fortunate enough to work with some really clever talented and hard-working people mm. oh thank you for sharing that journey and with your current role what what does global head of clinical yeah. affairs entail yeah, so um, just for context, yeah, Metagenics, there's the Australian business, yep. uh, there's a, a North American business and also peppered through Europe but um, uh, located in Belgium and we've got areas in South Africa and the UK and everywhere. But the three main regions, they were working independently largely uh, up until recently and, and um, the decision was that we sort of want to work more together to leverage some of our expertise in different areas, um, maybe reduce duplication because, you know, we're all making magnesium and selling it and so forth. Mm. Um, so, yeah, we united as one Metagenics. Um, so it's it's been about 12 months. Um, so I moved from, yeah, the head of science in Australia to this uh, global head of uh, clinical affairs, which is, yeah, it's a bit of an eclectic role and still unfolding. Um, but, again, you get to work with brilliant people from all around the world now, um, North America and Belgium and so forth. But it's probably mm. the, the couple of things we do is like global education, 
as I said, like some products and ingredients are universal. So we'll make education that can be used in all different regions. Uh, we're involved a little bit in innovation from a, a research perspective, helping the innovation team. Um, we do, I, my team looks after clinical trials. So Metagenics do, are involved in a number of clinical trials to test the efficacy of our products. Um, some are s small scale, some are larger. So uh, I've got a, a woman I'm fortunate to work with who's really, really good um, at that in organizing. There's a lot of moving parts with clinical research. So doing mm. that, we do some of our own like in-house clinical trials or case series where we want to, when we release a product, we want to test its efficacy and get some testimonials and case studies and also get a bit of a, a feel for it. Like what's the time to affect? Because you can look at the research and sometimes, you know, the, the first time they, they look at the effects is four weeks in, but patients understandably want to feel better sooner than that. So we want to get some, you know, data back earlier to see how well their stress is improving or sleep and so forth. And also roll it into more of a naturopathic program. We'll add product X with, you know, some of our staple products to, and some dietary advice and lifestyle and things and, and get a more of a holistic uh, case study. So we do some case series there. Um, I still do a fair bit of local education, um, present and do the podcast, obviously, mm. and also um, yep. organise congress as well. We do, obviously, an annual congress, which takes a fair bit of time and energy and it's good to get, um, yeah, some international or even domestic um, independent and expert speakers. So mm. that's probably the, some of the, the areas um, that is involved in clinical affairs. Yeah, no, thank you. That's great. And um, from an education perspective, how how do you balance research and anecdotal evidence in, in your current role? So presenting yeah. that information to people, how do you present that? How do you balance those two? Yeah, it's really tough. Um, but it's also rewarding as well. So it's that balance between obviously the data and almost that emotional resonance um, because that's that like one death's a tragedy, a million is a statistic. Interestingly, like the, the best proof in, in research is like a meta-analysis, but if you present that to a group, that doesn't really sort of get them that motivated. Um, but if you show a case study of, mm. you know, um, someone who's in pain and you've got all their, their metrics, sometimes they're kind enough to allow us to share their story and photo or video or something, um, and it's got a bit more granular as well that you can, people probably know in practice it's never you know, seldom a straightforward case and there's ups and downs and stresses come in and they, their commitment sometimes wanes or, you know, they forget to take the product for, or the protocol for a while. So it shows the, the nuances and the reality of everyday life. So we try and um, do both, um, you know, the hard evidence, but also the, 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 the human side and the, the case study. So, um, yeah, I think it's, and that's what I love is, um, sort of living in both worlds, the, the clinical and the sort of the more academic and um, sh highlighting the benefits, but also trying to um, not cover up but complement their, their shortcomings. So uh, mm. hopefully that sort of answered the, the question. Yeah, I mean, they coexist, don't they? It's, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then from, say, a, a research perspective, um, what are some of the challenges um, in our profession at the moment? Yeah, it's a good question. And I don't think this is um, uh, just limited to our profession. I think it's, again, back to my sort of armchair obsession with like neuroscience and human behaviour. I think it's sort of natural human behaviour. Some of these things I'll, I'll rattle off. That, But um, first of all, like I think we're more wired to be sort of political and coalition type of, uh, you know, species rather than independent scientists, meaning that, we're all prone to um, biases and probably like tribalism. Um, and, it, you know, as I said, it's not exclusive to, to natural medicine, but I think one of the challenges is we can um, have an, an identity you know, or an idea and get pretty wedded to that. Um, I, th I, I, I feel like I'm, which is probably the frustration of <laughs> so many of my colleagues and things. Um, I think I change my mind a lot <laughs> and, Anything I say, like moving forward, I've probably had held the maybe opposing view at one stage and then um, been humbled. You know, you get humbled by clinic, but you also can get humbled by research as well when you look at the data. And it's like, uh, that thing I once thought isn't as probably strong as I once believed. So 
Um, the challenges, I think, are we have inherent natural biases that can maybe blind us a little bit and um, prevent us from looking at the sort of the alternative sort of viewpoints or hypotheses or the null hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can be wrapped up in sort of our, almost our identity. Um mm. And <laughs> without sort of, you know, um, throwing a, a fuel, a, a match on the, the fuel, but like COVID really, I think, showed that like it really divided people, sadly. Mm. Um, and we, you know, it's again easy and we, we've got pretty lazy brains. We all do that to become sort of um, binary, like, you know, good and bad and this is right and that's wrong. And, yeah, there's a lot of nuance and complex complexities, I suppose, and all that. So the challenge, yeah, is that, Part of it is um, we put our stake in the ground and um, we, we tend to fight rather than explore. So at work we, um, we, we talk about this and there's a really good book called The Scout Mindset by Julia Gallif, which talks about this idea of um, typically we're wired to be of a soldier mindset where we defend our ideas and we put up walls and barriers um, and that's natural, and it's probably being scientific is almost unnatural because um, th- and this is the sort of scout mindset. So you, you're really trying to chart new territory and, and find new things rather than just defend your position, the status quo. So not easier said than done, um, and I'm sure I'm I'm guilty of it. But um, there's something to be mindful of that that that's some of the challenges of, of research. I think in our profession that we can um, maybe sort of have some biases Mm. um on the flip side or not on the flip side but the other challenge obviously is as everyone probably knows just the volume it's it's so hard to keep up like absolutely uh, (laughs) it's overwhelming yeah it's so overwhelming and uh, i wish i had a a simple answer for you And, and this is also like where um you naturally can just rely upon gurus and things like well what does so-and-so say like i'll just follow what they say because it's hard to know there's so much Mm -hmm. information and also you know um, science is super messy it's like it's always contradictory and mixed um findings and you can um yeah with your biases if you can cherry pick essentially (laughs) if you have a hypothesis you can find information to support that so trying to wade through that can be really difficult and frustrating and you can feel like there's nothing you know um perhaps nothing's really that effective but um yeah so the chat and maybe we can talk we can talk about like how to sort of navigate or potentially navigate this but um that's yes. yeah that's that's some of the challenges i'll go <laughs> I'll, I'll um talk about the problems and we'll hopefully can move to solutions um one thing that i do notice the challenges again is this sort of um mechanistic speculation versus clinical data like um there's some really cool and seductive pathways and, and theories and, you know, certain molecules that sound really cool, make a lot of sense. Um, and then, unfortunately, um, then you start looking to it. But when you look at the clinical trials, it's actually it doesn't really have a huge effect. Um, so I'm always wary of, um, it's not the, but, you know, mechanisms are really important to generate hypothesis. It, it's the really important for a foundation, but um, sometimes we can maybe over rely on just sort of mechanistic um studies um sorry it's, it's not all doing good but i will i'll list a couple more um <laughs> one thing that i did notice as well is um the effect size i think this is really important um and there's a bit of a saying and we even say it in our business like you know you go through good times and bad times nothing's as ever good as it seems and nor is nothing ever as bad as it seems <laughs> like yeah um Sometime, but I have noticed when you look at some of the research, the and clinicians probably understand this. Like it can be the p value can be right, you know, it's statistically significant, but the actual effect size, I don't think it's always clinically significant, um, and that's a, a big difference. And um, but there are some things that do have really good effect sizes, others that don't. Um, it's interesting things like, and I'll just sort of rattle off like, mm, um, yep. Mindfulness is really, really cool, but the effect size isn't that huge. It's, it's beneficial, but it's not going to be the, the game changer. Things like, um, I just had a, I was trying to recall earlier, things like um, emotional freedom technique, EFT, the effect size is really good. Um, EMDR, the effect size is compared to like antidepressants and things, mm. it's off the charts. It's like, wow, that's, that 
so some things really surprised me. Others, um, as like are a bit underwhelming. So yeah, yeah. So um, if you could explain for our audience, um, what is yeah. effect size? That'd be yeah, great. Yeah, and um, effect size. And I'm not a, a statistics expert, but I can. I suppose I can. I know enough to to get a bit of a sense of effect size. It basically what it suggests is how um, large of a magnitude or not is that the statistic and or clinical benefit. So generally off the top of my head, um, like you can have a something significant, but the effect size is 0 0.2 or 0 0.3. It's like, yeah, it's okay, but it's not going to, the way I interpret it, that's not going to be a game changer for, for clinical practice. And that's what I found like, uh, say mindfulness, it's, as I said, really, really cool, but I don't think as a standalone, it will be the shift the needle that much. For, for patients, um, not discouraging people to do it. And I think it's a, a great idea. Um, antidepressants are around the point 0 0.4, 0 0.5, which is okay. Um, but probably it means that, you know, half the people get benefit, half don't sort of thing. Um, when you get up to sort of 0 0.6, 0 0.7, um, it's quite profound. It looked like quite, that, that tells me that the effects are real and meaningful. And then above one is like really powerful and i think yeah i need to double check but some of those ones as i said um which has a reasonable body of evidence is um like eft and emdr are, uh, above the sort of 0.7s and someone getting to the the, the ones um, sort of mm. like a, a bit of a scale but you know the, the, the higher the better and um above 0 0.5 0 0.6 is where it's starting i think be clinically meaningful and impactful mm. Okay, yeah. And so you were mentioning, um, just talking about some of the challenges. Yes. So, yeah, how could research help clinical practice? Like what what are some tips? You've sort of mentioned having a mentor. <laughs> You've mentioned being aware of your biases and having yeah. a bit of a filter there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's it's really difficult, as I said. Um, I think trying to consume different sorts of information, mm. um, trying to be open, and it's not easy to, to look at, opposing views um you know i said try not to be what's that phrase like um strong convictions loosely held like have an opinion but be open prepared to change your mind mm. um so try and consume different types of information if you're you know only on the same facebook group um uh, i don't know or your social media or your, your news all that sort of stuff is um find ways again to to look for different source of information, you mightn't agree with it, um, but if you can, yeah, identify why you don't agree with it, I think it's really important. Mm. So, um, and it's, yeah, as I said, have, I think, mentors, but um, I think we've all got, as I said, biases. So, um, yeah, they can be guides, but, I mean, the, the whole, you know, concept of fact-checking is really important. Again, it can be hard um, and there's so much information. Um Something a little bit, you know, controversial is that um, a lot of the artificial intelligence is really taking off. Um, mm. I'm, I'm a bit of a... It is. I'm a bit of a wizard rather than a prophet. I, I'm a bit more optimistic. I know that there can be challenges, but um, playing around with it, it's like I, I use that to sort of fact check just to, to say, oh, it's, um, you know, they've got their biases as well. But there's, I think there'll be tools in the future that can help fact check a bit easier. Um, so how would you use AI? How, how, how's that process happen? Yeah, I've just been playing around with it, just um, more for writing and stuff. But mm. um, uh, I, I, I wrote something. Um, Was that that chat GTP? Yeah, well, that that's not bad. The actual um, the Microsoft one I, I find is a bit more accurate and um, detailed. And this is just early days. And by the time this podcast goes out, who knows? It could be a better <laughs> one. Um, but I was I was playing around with that the other day, and um, I. Uh, it was actually on, I did a podcast on Alzheimer's and I was trying to write, write the blurb for it. And I was like, I, I'm pretty sure that Alzheimer's is the leading cause of death in Australia. You know, often in preparation for the podcast, I'll read a lot of stuff, but I don't, you know, cite it all because it's just for my own preparation. And I know it's the most, I've heard that it's the most feared condition for people of middle and older age. Mm. Um and I, I just, I did a brain dump of all these sort of facts. And I mean, I could check it out and I, I usually do. I was like, I'll just give this um, AI a, a, a shot out of interest. And like, here's my um, blurb. Can you fact check all these things? And it went through it and provide all the citations. And 
thankfully I was I was right. It gave me some nuances, which were really good. It's like, well, it's most feared in Australians and in not all parts of the world, sort of stuff. And um, and it gave references because um, I have heard that the chat G um, PT can give false references mm. as well. So you got to fact check the fact checkers. That's right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so that was interesting, but that it worked. You know, my my brief use of it has been okay. Um, and I'm the view that yeah, the AI thinks is it it'll be like a word processor and Excel or whatever. Like probably in clinic as well. I don't know. Um, you know, for who knows what booking appointments and things. I don't think it's the the Skynet that's going to you know take over humanity. If it's just going to be hopefully probably another tool that we'll look back and like oh yeah, it's like you know we feared the internet. We I think they feared the radio and they feared the telephone and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, <laughs> years ago. <laughs> years yeah. ago. That's right. Um, I think the key um, word there, as you said, is tool. It's a tool. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's not going to replace us. And typically, um, I think it shows new technologies creates more jobs than than you know um, removes jobs. So I'm optimistic about that. But it, it, it might be one tool in the future um, using something like AI. Um, yeah, and obviously, so yeah, back to clinical research and practice. So yeah, it, it is hard to translate, um, mm. and it's not perfect. And I, I do also want to yeah call that like I'm no longer practicing much really we do a little bit in the clinic but um you know there is an art to, to clinical practice um and you know there's a lot of value in listening to your patients and so forth so this is just i suppose my area is biased in that sort of research so this is a one half of the coin that i'm i'm focusing on currently um so it's not to discount it's to again to complement what other you know um practitioners at the coalface are seeing patients every day but um yeah, it can just be trial, like something that sounds good, trial it. But again, um, try and sort of as best you can measure the efficacy that you think it because um, I think the placebo effects actually, you know, it's not a not just something to be um, dismissive. I, th- I think it's really powerful and the way you, you know, present things and frame it up and that the expectations and things. I think it's really important part of the healing as well. Um Whereas in, in research, I suppose it's seen as a, an annoyance. Um, but trying to work out the noise from, you know, the signal from the noise can be difficult in, in clinical practice. But having some KPIs and being open to, um, yeah, scrutinising your results um, rather than, yeah, I do not worry, but, you know, I do see that it feels like um, there's that concept of what they call it whale watching that, a fad comes along and the, the, the analogies of we're on a boat looking and there's the sea of whale on one side of the boat so everyone like rushes over and almost tips the boat over because we're <laughs> captivated by one whale then another whale comes we, we're, we're all guilty of sort of whale watching something comes along and um that becomes a new fad and um you can get that sort of group think around it so mm. um yeah just be open but um i suppose mindful of um its limitations um yeah, hopefully this is helping, not not hindering people. Yeah, no, of course. And um, N of one, if you could maybe perhaps explain that to people and where that role is being played, because that seems yeah. to be emerging a bit more in the field. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, the N what of one, is. obviously. Yep. Yeah, that, that's where rather than um, you're looking at a large body of um, subjects, like mm. N being the number, like 400, typically in research, the, the bigger the number, the better, gives you more power, blah, blah, blah. Um on the flip side, you can't see that sort of individual responses because you get hyper responders and, and no responders. So there is a movement um, to do more N of one, just looking at the person and almost they act as their uh, control where you you, you may um, apply an intervention for a, a period, then withdraw that and see the changes and almost probably what happens it's almost like christmas at um for practitioners you put them on a program and then christmas comes along and they they drop everything and they eat all the food and probably have you know conflicts with their their um siblings and parents and everything else they get stressed and they become overweight and then they come back in january and um get back on the program it's it's sort of like that but in a scientific way where they go on and off the the therapy and and sort of monitor their response compared to themselves so Hmm. um you know, some are really into it that argue they argue that that gives a better reflection of someone's individual response. But there's draw sides as well. Like, it's there's other things that could have occurred during that time that could account for you know the benefit or the detriment. So, um, but it, it's probably um, you know 
more cost effective. You can get more done. You can publish and get a signal. Um, we do a little bit of it at Metagenics with some external researchers. Um, so it's, it's good. It's just a different. And I think we'll see more of it in the future with mm. like personalized medicine where you, you might tweak the protocol for each individual. That's right. Mm, yeah. And so if we um, come back to yourself, um, Nathan, yeah. as a naturopath with your current role, where do you currently see the naturopathic profession and, and where is it heading? That's quite a broad question, but... Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's a good question and what's that comment there? Um, forecasting is difficult, especially about the future or something. Like it's, the future is hard to predict, um, but maybe some of this is my ideas or wishful thinking um, or hunches, but we'll give it a go anyway. Um, I, I do find it's heading and um in more of a it's sort of cliche but more of a holistic um direction where i feel like uh naturopathy and maybe more functional medicine sort of went through a, a teenage phase almost where it felt like i had to prove itself you know like mm. it was almost like green pharmacy like look at our I don't know, um, St. John's Ward, it, it, it works on this serotonin receptor and it boosts serotonin. That's why it helps depression. I felt like um, in some ways we're trying to prove that our um, ingredients and products and protocols were sort of quasi, um, you know, conventional medicine. Um, and we were probably ridiculed, maybe rightly so, about some of the, the woo-woo stuff about, you know, lifestyle and diet and sleep and exercise those sort of generic things uh but now the pendulum sort of is swinging where the i suppose you know conventional research is really like highlighting sleeps you know finally become recognized as a real pillar absolutely rhythm mm. diet and you know even you look at diet and they they can't really it's difficult to tease out diet but you know a whole food diet like uh, you know unprocessed food is probably the you know the, the big overarching thing um so i feel like and speaking to people um, outside of our industry, like professionals and professors, and and they're less sort of dismissive of naturopathy and um, more inclusive of it. Like, oh yeah, that, um, one professor said to me recently, uh, yeah, naturopathy is really good for like getting people dialed into their diet and lifestyle and exercise. Um, so I think it's becoming accepted that the, the lifestyle sort of part of medicine um, is yeah, becoming more accepted and I think we can, you know, do more there. Um, it's not to say we still can't do cool research and release products and things that do work on pathways and mechanisms, um, but embracing the, you know, the, the, those sort of generic things as well. So in um, complement to that, one area I think I, I find interesting and I at least we get good feedback with some of our products and things, are uh, some nutrients that uh, loosely I'll call conditionally essential, like um, PEA. Um, these sort of nutrients and um, the SPMs, those specialised pro-resolving mediators, which is sort of downstream from omega-3, like people can take fish oil and maybe still not get the benefits, but when they try these SPMs, technically our body can make them, but for whatever reason, and we still probably don't really know to be frank, that some people don't make enough of them. And when they try the SPMs, it, it's a game changer from all sorts of things, sinusitis and pains and aches and endometriosis and things. So at PEA, I think um, a lot of practitioners are using that and it's become available recently. It's that other area where another example of like our body can make it, but mm. in a perfect world, but it doesn't mm. typically. And if you add that back in, um, again, like we get some, and I'm, I'm sure it's not just us, um, anyone who sort of uses PA, we get some, yeah, like life-changing anecdotes. And honestly, that's the reason I sort of get out of bed and um, go to work every day is like knowing that you can make an impact on someone's life that were was, you know, crippled with pain and arthritis and uh, it's, you know, pretty quickly a distant memory for them like and mm. they tried you know sort of the humpty dumpty that all the king's horses and men couldn't fix them mm. <laughs> um and then they try this thing as like wow this is powerful um so i think yeah that's what really excites me in the future is finding those things there's probably some that have been you know like pea has been around forever it's just it takes 20 years sometimes for these things to surface or to to, to catch on um so i'm i think there's more out there 
I think again with AI and stuff like now they're searching like it used to be that um, you know would be hopeful that someone's perused the Amazon rainforest and found some new exotic herb or something and that's the game changer. Well, now I think in the future it's going to be done with like you know all this sort of computation and AI and screening. Um, I think these sort of peptides like finding bioactive peptides in foods and things often probably hiding in plain sight like common foods but um that's yeah this is my sort of optimism for the future will uncover a lot of these bioactive um agents in in foods and, and everyday herbs that um can be deployed for uh yeah our physiology um one area this is more wishful think i don't want to say wishful thinking but one area that i'd like to see more of um and um, I haven't really been able to sort of articulate this, and but um, I'll use an analogy. There's this concept of positive psychology, like you know, psychology is often about the the doom and gloom and depression, anxiety. Um, I think Sonia Lemursky has done some work here about you know what's the the, the antithesis, what's the um, bright spots in psychology that um, we can show that is linked to happiness and well-being and so forth. And I have this sort of concept around neutropathy like positive neutropathy um you know one of the things i think neutropathy really mirrors like understanding physiology and homeostasis what our body has this innate ability to heal and how do we better understand that and find you know not only our current ways but new ways of leveraging the innate healing process so one thing um that i'm sort of mindful of in the industry and again, it's not uh, it's not unique to natural medicine, and I think it's natural. We, as a species, it's better to be overreactive than dead. <laughs> Essentially, like you're better, you know, as a rustle in the bush, and you know, being in Brisbane, I, I maybe think it's a, a, a brown snake that could be a grasshopper sort of thing. Um, but I feel there is a bit of um, negativity and um, almost catastrophizing or view that our bodies are, are really fragile like um yeah well, and probably one other area i haven't touched upon is one thing that i do find is we maybe pathologize normal physiology um and this is something again i just want to say i've you know changed my mind on a lot and this is I've, I've flipped is um the body is pretty robust mm. and rather than being um trying to sort of you know promote complete sort of safety um it's like a good example is we've be, become obsessed and not us but um a lot, lot through the world is like carbohydrates and insulin like any sort of ingestion of carbohydrates and our insulin levels go up a little bit we we think it's you know doom and gloom and there's some people that measure healthy people that measure their, their glucose constantly and stuff um cortisols you know pain is a bad thing but we need it for memory and so forth um leaky gut like even leaky brain like stuff's supposed to get in and stuff's supposed to get out like um we need to be mindful of what's actually normal physiology versus pathology and try and mm. we don't necessarily have to blanket everything um that's not um you know out of uh, ideal and even like um you know i think trauma a little bit to some degree like i think there's potential traumatic experiences but looking at the data we're, we're super resilient we're actually anti-fragile in many ways like trauma persistent trauma is um more the exception rather than the rule not to say that people don't you know experience a lot of trauma and stuff but and we probably obviously i want to acknowledge that we practitioners also do see like sort of a selected group where they you might see more trauma but i just i want to sort of try and complement that with this view that we we do have pretty robust physiology both mentally physically and so forth that um, yeah, sometimes it needs a nudge. Um, mm. And how can we, how can we, you know, create and find those catalysts to to restore, rather um, than sometimes I feel like, and this is maybe a bit of a worry moving forward. We can sort of, you know, what's the old phrase about the elimination diet? What's what is an elimination diet? Something that eliminates all your patients from your practice because no one wants to follow it. Oh, is um, that right? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't heard that one. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, but, you know, we can be very restrictive and sometimes mm. that's important, um, removing foods, removing this, removing that. Um, I want to, I suppose, be more pres prescriptive and additive as well, like try this for healing, 
um, this has been, you know, activate the vagus nerve that has a powerful anti-inflammatory effect or something like, like um, mm. as much as trying to, um, you know, put our patients in cotton wool. And again, often this is needed and people can have, you know, uh, it's horrific some of the sensitivities and, and patients have and I'm pretty mm. lucky that I suppose I'm quite healthy and robust in that sort of sense. Um, I'm, I'm mindful of being empathetic with with practitioners and patients but what's that balance between, um, you know, restriction? I think even like the FODMAPs is a good example where we went pretty hardcore mm. on the FODMAPs and there's, you know, trade-offs like what's it doing the microbiome and all that sort of stuff. Um there's a get, time and space, isn't there? Yeah, like you're on yeah. FODMAPs, for example, for a certain period of time that's appropriate to the individual. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. just that, sorry, it's a bit of a long ramble and rant, but just that sort of complement to, yes, we need to sometimes remove the gluten and dairy, blah, 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 but when can we actually provide that signal of healing or, or safety or, you know, growth and, and safety, whether that's a herb, um, some sort of, um, mind-body thing, mm. um, a nutrient, um, not just protection but promoting healing, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you, you're working with the, um, the cellular intelligence, the intelligence of body-mind. I think that's that holistic approach that you were talking about, you know, earlier. It's, it's you know, that's naturopathy yeah. and that's complementary medicine, isn't it? It's holistic. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'll just, yeah, a couple more I'll, I'll rattle off. Um, we mentioned technology, I think. Just another area, um, naturopathy is, you know, the philosophy is great, but I'm also mindful we have to become, still be progressive. And um, I think technology is evolving pretty rapidly. Uh, um, and again, I might be more of an optimist and a sort of a, a like technology. Um, but just, I, bet, I suppose, be open to, to new stuff in the future. Um, and yeah, it'll be, I think, hopefully tools rather than, there won't be replacements and, um, yeah, I think we just have to sort of be mindful of, of keeping up. Otherwise, we could be seen as, as dated. And I suppose, you know, that the landscape shifted a lot recently and um, there's a lot of online sort of health coaches and you, you look on YouTube and all the podcasts and things which are great, but maybe there's, a you know, in some ways competition for the traditional naturopaths. So not to say if you can't beat them, join them, but I think we have to sort of move with the times as well. Um, another, this is, and I probably should have worn up front. These are all my, you know, personal views. It's not metagenics, so obviously not. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, common grounds and lots of stuff, but um, I, I, I see good opportunity in more the application rather than the diagnostics. Meaning, um, I'm pr- probably more of a person of less testing um, than others. And again, this is personal preferences. There's like a, I don't play golf, but there's an analogy like, you know, someone might use five clubs where other people might use 10 clubs and I wouldn't use a pitching iron or whatever they're called. I'd probably use a, a five and a seven or whatever. I don't, I'm not much of a, a tester other than the, the conventional things. Um, I, I see the value, but mm. um, I think that the challenge is, and it's not easy, is behaviour change and, you know, people are, we do if some interviews with practitioners about their patients and things, and often it's the the, the patient knows what to do. It's just they're, they're busy, they're stressed, they're stretched, um, they're overwhelmed. How do we make it more digestible? How do we encourage behaviour change so they are able to follow the diet or even, you know, um, they can have the herbal mix, but they've got to, they've got to take it as well, like just getting that consistency. And um, I don't... Yeah, probably the, the I think the value is in not so much um, the additional testing that might narrow down this, you know, one molecule or pathway that's the the cause, but more those generic things like how do we get the patient to um, engage and mm. to be able to digest and, and follow these these changes because sometimes we do ask, you know, pretty big changes and rightly so they can have profound impact. So as much as on... Um, all the, the cool gadgets, which is sort of counter to what I just said, we need to be, I think, um, mindful of how do we get people to change. And again, human nature is inertia is really difficult to overcome. So I don't have all the answers, but um, yeah, I think that to spend some energy and time and that would be um, to be, uh, would be useful. And just um, 
in terms of like areas, uh, probably nothing new here. Obviously, like bread and butter is gut. Um, I suppose I'm not a contrarian and I challenge people internally. I, it's probably more than just a, a dysbiosis and a, a leaky gut. There's um, other things going on in the gut. Um, it's a two-way street with the brain or any other sort of um, organ that when we treat gut, we can treat it by the brain perhaps. Um, but I think gut issues are obviously going to be bread and butter for um, practitioners moving forward. Um, stress, you know, we're always stressed. We have been, we always, <laughs> probably always will be. We're, we're, you know, as I said, we're, we're pre-wired to be anxious. Um, there's always opportunity to help people with, I think, mood um, disorders. As the population gets older, I think like cognition um, may become more of a focus. Um, mm. Pain is, you know, an area where I think um, practitioners can get really good, as I mentioned, like with the SPMs and the PA. That's as I think that's, you know, they're the ones that get your referrals where you, you change someone's life and they're going to be your best advocate to recommend your services. So I think there's good opportunity with pain, especially like, you know, with the scheduling changes with the opioids and lots of stuff, that there's huge opportunity there and hopefully that we get more breakthrough therapies in natural medicine around pain because that's obviously a big area. Mm. And women's health, um, obviously, um, most... Was it seventy five percent of patients are women, and typically of that sort of reproductive age? Um, so women's health's obviously big. I suppose again, my and again, I'm not an expert here, but um, this is sort of what our congress is about. Is it's more than just quote unquote balancing hormones. It, you know, um, maybe we can get a little bit fixated on the the two to sixteen hydroxylation of estrogen and all that sort of stuff, which is interesting. I don't know if it's enough to move the needle in some of these, you know, uh, horrific, like endometriosis just sounds, yeah, it's horrid. Um, and yes. if we can find ways to help with these patients, I think it's hormones are balance is sufficient but not, oh, sorry, necessary but not sufficient. Like, yes, you get your hormones into sort of ballpark figure, um, but, you know, there's mast cells. I think the autonomic nervous system, there's clotting factors, there's, um, growth factors, all this sort of stuff outside of hormones. That's endometriosis is just an example. But mm. with our sort of interviews and don't want to call it research, but, um, you know, sort of market research into women's health, it seems everything but hormones are, are what practitioners are struggling with. Like, um, you know, lo a lot of women, it's obviously stress. They, they might have some sort of dysmenorrhea, but they're also trying to juggle maybe a career, um, you know, that, They've got kids. Um, they're at that sandwich age where maybe the parents are starting to, you know, have needs. They've got to deal with those. So burnout, you know, is a huge yeah. unrecognised area. And, again, I think this is where we can really help with our sort of holistic care. So thinking sort of more globally around women's health, I think, um, and, again, there's some great experts in this area and certainly I'm not one of those. But, um, yeah, just sort of broadening the, the lens, I suppose, it's, it's beyond hormones. Um, so I think there's some of the the areas that I see uh, an opportunity for us, you know, as a profession to essentially, you know, as I said, to get out of bed. That that mantra, it's, we just want to, you know, alleviate to a little degree suffering that humans invariably um, experience through their, their lives. How do, how do we do that? And I think there's opportunities there in natural medicine in those sort of areas. Mm. Well said. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our audience? Um it's, yeah, it's an exciting time. As I said, um, there's plenty of research. There's plenty of opportunity. There is obviously like a lot of noise and competition. Um, as I said, try and consume different bits of information. Obviously, this podcast and there's others and bits and pieces, um, trial things. Um, and, yeah, as I said, these are just my views. I could be completely, <laughs> completely wrong. Um, and just uh, I suppose I'd, I'll point out like, career opportunities for those you know you got students here or people that you know i was in practice for five years and had a change of direction i think one thing that it, i do notice that um practice isn't the only avenue and pathway for people um for naturopaths or natural mm. health therapists so i might just quickly do a mental sort of walk through some of the areas like at least in the business i work in where we have naturopaths and where you, they work and they you know thrive and enjoy it which is not you know, obviously clinical practice, but 
you know, we have people in our sales team that they just love. It's like they get to, you know, drop in on practitioners. They, it's almost like their clients. They learn about cases. They they learn of practitioners. Um, yeah, we got we have some sales guys that just yeah love what they do. They're, they're naturopaths um, in marketing. You know, we get to communicate. One of the things I like is. I was in practice, you can maybe, you know, if you're super busy, you see 60 patients, um, you might see 20 or 10. If you, you know, thankfully, like with this platform, you potentially reach so many more people. Mm. And you've got this ability, um, hopefully, you know, we've got some good content and messages. But, yeah, that sort of scalability, I suppose, is really cool. And, and, you know, marketing is not a dirty word. And, um, yeah, you can reach out and and connect with so many more practitioners and it can be really creative as well um if you're you know a creative person something like in marketing is really cool and super dynamic as well mm. um we've got people on the phones so clinicians on the phones doing clinical support um you know they're, they're going through a bunch of cases every day and, and working a team environment workshopping cases and things we have obviously people in education that get to translate the science and that the, the clinical practice into um, hopefully, you know, digestible and hopefully sort of entertaining and impactful communication that, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky. I've, um, you know, I've been allowed to travel around and uh, I don't, I, I'm happy whether it's, you know, a, literally a caravan park in Byron Bay or, you know, the height in Melbourne. Um, it's all cool to me. You get to meet people. I get to meet people when I travel and hear practitioners. So, you know, there's travel opportunities, there's community communication um r&d if you're more process orientated um project management style um r&d is really good you get to still formulate we've got innovation as well that's really good um where you get to you know follow the trends and try and convert it into something that practitioners need and, and value and then um even regulatory affairs um you know there's is there two certainties in life? I think there's three. There's death taxes and the TGA. Like there's always going to be work in the um in regulatory affairs. They're really good people. Um, and it's quite an interesting role. And but you're never without working with the mm. TGA. Always you know flipping and changing for better or for worse. So, um, it, but then there's like quality insurance and so forth. So there's a real you know huge smorgasbord of um different pathways that um mm. and it's just my organisation. But you know like with you and um. Yeah, it's not just clinical practice. So it's great. And, yeah, that's yeah, right. There's yeah. great people. But, you know, it's maybe not for everybody and that's probably what I, I learnt um, and it's not until you try it that, you know, it doesn't always suit everybody. Um, it's not to say the person's a failure. Um, it's just that we've all got strengths and I think, um, you know, people say do what you love. I think the flip side is find out what you're good at and people value it and um, you tend to you tend to enjoy what people, you know, gives you status and and not in a, in a bad way, but, um, yeah, find out what you're good at and you'll probably love it as well and, um, you know, pursue that. It'd be maybe mm-hmm. a, just a, a different way to, to think about things. Not to, But, yeah, I mean, practice is amazing. You get to really transform people's lives. Mm. So I just wanted to give you a bit of a, I suppose, a, a taste of, at least from my perspective, some of the opportunities that could be, you know, an option for, for people. Mm, yeah, no, thank you. That um, you've shared such a great variety there, and um, thank you. You've shared some really great insights and information for for us to digest. So, thank <laughs> you for your time on um, Common Ground, Nathan. No worries. Well, yeah, again, thanks for the opportunity. I was um, shocked and humbled, and as I said, these are just my views. And as I said, I, I like I do change my mind. So, <laughs> if you probably ask me in a week's time, I might have a completely <laughs> different different answer. But um, that's cool. Yeah, food for thought, and that, you know that's what these hopefully right. these podcasts are for. It's, it's it's food for thought. It is exactly. Well, thank you for tuning in today. Please feel free to leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you. 